are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent. And this evening, we are picking up on page 166 of the blue volume. If you happen to have that, uh, I believe it was published in 2011. Uh, but if not, we are on the step on vainglory. So it's step number 22, if you're using a different text. And we are on paragraph number 18, towards the bottom of the page. So again, that's page 166, number 18. So we've been discussing vainglory. And in John's mind, uh, vainglory leads to pride, clearly, and uh, that he even sort of wonders out loud why there would be a separate step on it, because uh, pride is simply the fully developed vainglory. So what we are saying about vainglory, we can certainly say of pride and, and vice versa. Uh, but it does, uh, I think provide us, uh, even though he might see things in that way, he provides us with these extraordinary, uh, not only definitions of inglory, but examples and then remedies for it uh, that are, are certainly valuable to us. And uh, so we're picking up, as he's still beginning to unpack it for us in terms of defining it, uh, and then he'll move into various examples and then finally some remedies. Uh, that he's come to see over the course of time. And so again, we're picking up with number 18. I've noticed the demon of inglory suggesting thoughts to one brother while he reveals them to another, and he incites the latter to tell the former what is in his heart and then praises him as a thought reader. And sometimes unholy creature that he is, even touches the bodily members and produces palpitations. So the, the action of the demon here is very concrete uh, and uh, very subtle, certainly, in appealing to this desire to be esteemed in one's own eyes or in the eyes of others. So putting a thought in one brother's uh, in mind while putting the same thought in another's that his brother is having that thought. So as to make him think that in some ways he's been given the, the gift of uh, foreknowledge or that he's been given the gift of uh, reading minds. And, uh, and he says, even to the point of 
uh, you know, reaching out and touching the other person, uh, sort of indicating this in one way, or having the other individual, the, the first monk, comment on it or express a kind of wonder over it. And, uh, and this can be, you know, more common than I think we imagine, uh, where a person might know another well enough or have enough insight to be able to see things or to pick up on them. Uh, but, but beyond that, the, you know, the, the fact that the demons sort of know us so well as, and know our movements of mind, our habits of mind and speech, uh, they, they have this kind of ability then to place these kinds of thoughts before us, to seduce us, if you will, to, to point these things out to others, again, to make us think that in some ways we are specially gifted or that this has been given to us by God, uh, whereas it is meant to set up this kind of illusion of, of spiritual greatness and outside in particular of that relationship with God. Everything that we've seen so far in the Evergatinos and in Climacus is the desire of the monks to avoid the things that are extraordinary but or to keep them hidden uh, and seeing them often more as a kind of cross than they do as something valuable. And uh, but for the vainglories that they they hold out this great appeal uh, because it's often something that we are are looking for too in the life of religion the extraordinary uh, and the same thing we see in in our our Lord's life that uh, over and over again they want him to prove himself through extraordinary deeds and so we hear him say it is a, a wicked generation, an evil generation that seeks signs, uh, that they, they wanted to, him to prove himself over and over again to them. And, uh, and so even though he's manifesting the kingdom, as well as this kind of new genesis, this renewal taking place through the miracles, through the healings, uh, the manifestation of the kingdom, he's very cautious. Uh, and we hear him over and over ordering people not to tell others of what has happened or who he is. Very guarded against that early on in the ministry, precisely because he knows that others are going to be seduced into making more of that than focusing upon what God is truly revealing in and through him. And uh, we can easily... Uh, even though we know these things in our own personal spiritual life, uh, the same battle that we see go, go on in the scriptures, you know, whether it's among the scribes and the Pharisees or others, is the battle that still wages within our, within our own hearts. And so when we listen to the scriptures, when we hear them proclaimed, we are to think of ourselves first and foremost, how is this still true? for us? How is this being enacted? We just celebrated the feast of the beheading of John the Baptist. And this the story is intriguing as it is uh, graphic. You know, the movements there in people's minds and hearts, you know, the lustfulness uh, of, of Herod, 
uh, yet his pride and vainglory of not wanting to go back on his oath in front of his guests, the guests remaining all mute, even though most of them surely uh, believed that bringing in a head of a person on a platter to a dinner party was not a great thing to do. Uh, Herodias scheming uh, in her desire to silence the voice of John, who had rebuked them. And then the daughter simply being caught up uh, uh, in the event herself, uh, being seductress, but one who was being used unawares by her own, own mother. And when we hear these stories from the scriptures, we don't want to uh, project them outwards onto others, certainly, but nor do we want to see them as something lost in the past, but rather a battle that is often taking place within us. The very same movements we can see taking place of seeking to silence the voice of conscience or the prophets, perhaps, that God places along our paths uh, that uh, are difficult to hear or uh, of not following the guidance of the spirit of truth that searches the depths of our hearts. All of these things, again, can be a part of our own spiritual battle. And similarly here, you know, what we see going on here can take place on a daily basis where we can be seduced by the praise of others. But there is often this craving we have within our own hearts uh, by our desire to esteem ourselves highly in our own mind, even that others would confirm that others would praise us. And so when we do something good, the, the poll can be very great to put ourselves out there without the acknowledgement of God or giving gratitude to, to him. As we mentioned last time, you know, it's not as though God fails to give us good things or consolations. What is important is the, the gratitude that we, we offer in the face of those things, that we acknowledge that all things begin and end with him and never seek to seize for ourselves those things as though we are their origin. And so in these examples, this and what we are going to see moving forward uh, is John's warning to us that this, is our, this can be a, a very strong tendency within us, especially, he tells us, as we grow in virtue. This is the particular vice that uh, often afflicts us the most, to see that virtue is arising from our own efforts, from our own prayers and asceticism. Number 19, do not take any notice of him when he suggests that you should accept a bishopric, abbacy, or professorship, for it is difficult to drive away a dog from a butcher's counter. Uh, again, John always has the uh, most splendid of examples, you know, dr driving away a dog from a butcher's counter. This is, you know, our hunger for the self-esteem, the praise that would come through any one of these things, or the power that might come through one of these things, at least in our own eyes, being an abbot or a bishop or a professor, and to be acknowledged as so. Uh, you know, that again, we, we see within the scriptures how powerful this was for the professional religious, as it were, you know, that, uh, and Jesus points it out. And uh, certainly as 
as one who bears a title and who wears special garments, those passages are very challenging. You know, those who uh, uh, wear their, you know, phylacteries and, you know, these long, long garments hanging from them and or make them broad and then enjoy special titles from others, master, teacher, father, you know, that all of these things tell us to be wary of such things in our own life because of how easily one can be seduced, you know, to be put up on a pedestal because of one's position in one form or another. And when it comes to religious things, I think it's even more powerful than the things of the world, you know, that uh, we feel ourselves elevated within the community in some form or fashion uh, as having done something, you know, extraordinary or having a particular knowledge of the faith. And so we always want to be moving in the contrary direction to these things, not, not seeking out uh, that praise of others and being careful even how we give praise to others and then not seeking out without great discernment and or accepting without great discernment things that are, are given to us in, in the sense of position. Um, St. Philip Neri, you know, in his role that he created for his community was uh, forbidding of any of the members taking ecclesiastical dignities, uh, that they weren't to take be take something like being a monsignor or become a bishop or a cardinal. And somehow he was able to avoid it. Some of the other oratorians weren't as, as lucky uh, throughout the course of their life. Uh, but uh, this is true in a number of different orders. It was true for the Jesuits as well, that they weren't to accept positions of honor like this. And I think because the, these founding saints, again, saw uh, the trials often that would come to those who were given these positions, and certainly Philip Neri and Ignatius of Loyola in Rome, at the time when they lived, saw great corruption. And there were often great benefices that came with such offices as well. So, you know, financial gain. And again, so all of these things, you know, being praised can lead, lead to one or another, one thing to another. And then we can become like that dog at the butcher's counter. The more that we are given, the more that we hunger for. And if you give a dog a little bit of meat at a butcher's counter, he's gonna show up there every day looking for, for a handout. And anybody who has a dog knows that. They become the greatest vacuums uh, that God ever made, because they just follow you around and eat everything you drop on, on the floor. Uh, and so that's how we are, you know, so often, you know, we want the crumbs that the world will give us and deigns to throw in, into our laps. Whenever he sees that any have acquired in some slight measure a state of peace, he immediately urges them to leave the desert for the world, saying, set out in order to save the souls which are perishing. And so, again, you know, when we're looking at John writing in particular for monks and those who have embraced the life of solitude, the great temptation for them uh, is often to, to leave their cell and either insert themselves in the business of others or to leave the desert altogether. 
that the temptation will come to go and share their knowledge, their wisdom with those in the world. The thought that they could do more uh, for God, for the church, for the salvation of souls uh, by removing themselves from the solitude of the desert. And you can imagine how powerful that would be you know, to remain in silence in one cell in the desert where there's nothing to feed that craving that we have for, for distraction, but certainly nothing to feed that uh, sense or very little to see, feed that need for vainglory. And so the pull back to the world and the things of the world would be great. Uh, for all of us though, you know, I think there can be still this incredible pull away from the solitude that is necessary in our life that gives way to prayer or gives birth to prayer, that we can move away from simplicity of life and clutter our life with things, again, that can be benign or even good in our own eyes. Uh, that can be, again, thrown in our laps by others. Here, do this, or can you do this, or you'd be great for this. And, uh, and within that, uh, or even within you know, one's job in the world, that there can be this uh, feeling that we have to climb that ladder. Uh, where it might take something from us in the end that is greater. And I think sometimes we get that sinking feeling within our hearts that we are on the wrong path. That even when we are, when we are doing those things, or where we seem to be growing in, in prestige, or, or in our jobs if we're making greater money, or we're climbing up that ladder, that we're along the wrong path because it's taking away that intimacy with others, perhaps with one's family or one's spouse, or that intimacy with the Lord in prayer, or the silence that is so needed to, to listen to God, or to spend that time with the saints, with the fathers, precisely in reading their writings or reading about their lives, we become immersed in the things of this world. So again, all the ways that we see the monks being seduced in their particular vocation, I think we could see ourselves being seduced in a similar fashion. That what's being talked about here is not simply monastic spirituality. It's the spirituality that's rooted in the gospel and rooted in the reality of our spiritual battle with the evil one and the battle to overcome our passions and to grow in virtue. Any comments or questions as of yet? Okay. Number 20. Whenever, I'm sorry, here's, here's one, Lawrence Martone. Uh, perhaps the opposite of this vice of vainglory and seeking prestige is the beautiful story about St. John Vianney, who added his own signature to a letter of protests to the bishop uh, from leading clerics and parishioners against uh, his way of being a pastor. Yes, I, I love that story, uh, that he signs the petition to get rid of himself. And uh, I, don't, I don't imagine that that was altogether, you know, it certainly wasn't just uh, an empty act of piety. I think John, you know, in his humility, saw himself falling very short 
of the extraordinary responsibilities that were put on his shoulders. And, uh, but as the patron saint of priests and parish priests, he's this perfect example of where to keep one's mind and heart. Uh, you know, that his longing, in fact, was to enter into the desert, to become a Trappist monk. And there were a couple of times where he had to be chased down as he was making his way out of town uh, to do exactly that. Uh, and so, uh, but yes, he's always this extraordinary example. Uh, if, uh, if you haven't read his biography, it's a little long. But it's by Abbe Troshu, I think is the name, T-R-O-U-C-H-E. Uh, and I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Maybe somebody could help me out with that. But it's extraordinary if you haven't had the chance to, to read it. Andrea and Anthony. Hi, Father. Yeah, I, I uh, was listening to you speak. And, you know, I guess I have conflicting feelings and I just don't know how to reconcile mm -hmm. them you know I uh, hear what you're saying and I understand the impetus from uh, this from both Climacus and the saints to do what you're saying at the same time it feels to me that we need good bishops that we need good popes and we need good priests and if some of this great saints had stepped forward, maybe we wouldn't have had, you know, popes, father and children, and all of these abysmal things that we had in the past, mm -hmm. uh, because people that uh, actually step up for these positions were the ones that were seeking money and power and glory and all these things. Mm -hmm. So I just feel that, you know, they kind of uh, skirted their duty, you know, to the rest of us by just taking care of themselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, I guess you know, I, I just feel that it's some, it's somewhat selfish of them to uh, just mm -hmm. think of uh, their own, uh, you know, like oh, I'm so afraid I'm going to become proud. I'll just crawl into my little hole and avoid the whole situation, <laughs> and you know, just leave us, leave us in a mess. Right. So yeah. I, I just don't know how to reconcile. Yeah. No, th that's me you're talking about, the one who wants to crawl into the hole, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> But uh, I think with the same, no, it's a good point. And I think on one level, we have to trust in divine providence. Uh, if God desires an individual to be a priest or, uh, or to be a bishop, then he's going to hound him. Uh, some of the oratorian beati, you know pretty well, uh, I think it was Juvenal Ancina who fled and was sort of hiding in another diocese. And had to be yes, tracked down when, when the bishop. What's that? He was. It was. It's his feast day today. Yes. Uh, wait, the thirtieth. That's right. Yes. It's his and. Uh, it's his feast day today. Right, and uh, extraordinary priests, holy priests. But I think he was well aware, you know, certainly of the wisdom of Philip Neri, who was his spiritual father, but the dangers of it, what he saw in his time the potential corruption spiritually there, and that it is a real danger for us. And, and perhaps seeing within his own heart, I don't think it's you know this fear rather than, or lack of courage, but seeing 
with the movements within one's own heart, but also the demons movements within one's life that would make one weary of taking on a position of rec that's often was especially in that time given a kind of honor or seen as a privilege and so it's not as though they didn't want to serve you know certainly uh juvenile Encino was an extraordinary priest as was philip neary and uh and eventually did submit to the will of the pope and was extraordinarily courageous in fact uh he had to discipline a capuchin friar and uh, a nun who had entered, entered into an illicit affair. And while he was doing a visitation at the friary, he was poisoned and to death. I've always felt that his cause should have been moved on because I think he was martyred for carrying out his, his role uh, as bishop and was this extraordinary figure. And, uh, but in some, I guess in some ways it couldn't be exactly proved, but it was pretty clear. Uh, given what had happened to him. So, you know, I think most of the individuals that we see, including these monks engaged in this spiritual battle, were courageous in, in the spiritual fight. But under, they also understood human weakness, that our tendency is, again, for the ego uh, to snap back into that place of, uh, of being at the center of our life rather than God. And especially as we get to the passions that are more subtle, like this, that, you know, living the hidden life or the humble life is not something that one does out of fear, but really an imitation of Christ. It's this desire to stay along that path of, of humility. Now, uh, one could do that certainly as a bishop or as an abbot, but again, when a person is put in a position of power over others, a responsibility over others, that power can corrupt, and it can corrupt very quickly. And so we do well, I think, to be cautious about leaping in, into those positions uh, without discerning in a very deep way or receiving a specific command as these particular particular men did. Uh, again, you know, unlike some of the other passions, we can see already how subtle the 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 demons work can be. And uh, and so uh, you know there there you know was this kind of wisdom, I think, rather than fear uh, guiding and directing directing their actions. Let's move on to a couple of the other questions here, and we'll see if it fleshes out what you were saying here. I think uh, Louise's hand was up first, and then Father Marty will take yours. It's to say that the pronunciation is trouche. Trouche. Okay. Trouche. Trouche. I, I was always, I had always wondered that, and but in any case, it's an extraordinary biography. Of yeah. Bionni. But you abbreviate it to trouche. Okay. Pushed. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, and Father Marty writes, St. John Chrysostom, St. Gregory the Theologian, also fled the priesthood, but eventually offered the church the extra an extraordinary legacy. Vainglory, would you say, attacks or tries to undermine our authentic vocations? Yes. You know, I think as we see even in this last uh, saying, you know, or this, the one before that, 
you know, this temptation to enter back into the world, uh, you know, for the monk and for those in the world who have been called to particular active ministry, perhaps it is to undermine uh, that authentic vocation, as it would be in marriage too, you know, when uh, something can be held out or dangled out before one of the spouses is being, you know, is offering a greater happiness or sense of fulfillment that uh, one can be drawn out of that particular vocation. And so vainglory, and again, I think we want to see vainglory and pride is tied together. So I think John is probably going to explain this better than I can as we move forward. Uh, but I think what you're saying here is right, that it attacks that fundamental vocation. And for the oratorian, which I mentioned, for Juvenile Ancina and for Philip and, and for St. Ignatius Loyola, their vocation was to be a Jesuit or to be an oratorian. It was not to be a bishop, but there were plenty others that they felt, both religious and diocesan, that could fulfill that role. And where they were to live this humble life of prayer, administration of the sacraments, and uh, this discourse, familiar discourse on the word of God. And, um, and so they would see themselves as being pulled out of that vocation. And it's, it's again, it could be this feeling of, again, not lack of courage, but this feeling of being on the wrong path, of being drawn toward the wrong path that leads them to flee from it. And so they have to be shown in a very concrete way that it's something other than that. Even if it means being dragged back to Rome, like poor juvenile. Okay. Uh, Andrea and Anthony, did you have a follow-up there or is your hand just up still? It was. <clears throat> no, it's actually, uh, I just put the, the hand up again. This time I had a point to make. And uh, if you don't mind, Father, you know, I just remembered the third luminous mystery from the rosary. And that is proclaiming the kingdom. And our Lord says in Matthew 10, 7 to 8, As you go, make this proclamation. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, drive out demons. Without cost you have received, without cost you are to give. Mm -hmm. So it, it seems to me that this our Lord is actually asking us to, to be very active. And uh, I was wondering, is there a corresponding, um, is there any, does our Lord Jesus Christ anywhere say that uh, it is okay to kind of remain uh, hidden? Um, I, I don't want to attack the desert way of life, but uh, even John the Baptist, who spent a great uh, amount of his life in the desert, he ultimately came out to prepare the, uh, the way for the Lord. So, how... yeah. okay, sure. Just a thought about right. being active right. and proclaiming think... the kingdom. <laughs> right. I think when we look at this, we don't want to telescope things together here. I think, you know, what John is talking about specifically in this text is the spiritual battle that goes on and, uh, you know, is, uh, you know, underlies all of our decisions and actions and thoughts. And so he's not talking specifically about, uh, you know, vocations or the proclamation of the gospel. Again, he's writing specifically for, for monks who've been 
have embraced a specific call to this particular life while also revealing how one of the demons will work on us. And even with Christ, we have the example of living the hidden life for 30 years uh, before then entering into the desert, you know, preparing through fasting and, and deep prayer before, you know, stepping out into his active ministry, which was relatively a short period of time of his life, three years. And, uh, and so I don't think we want to sort of put these two things in opposition. And I'll just let that be as we'll move on here, uh, just to, again, let John flesh it out. But I don't think we want to see the two things in opposition, that as we look at our vocations, we want to be aware of both things. You know, John has had a step on unmanly fears uh, uh, that we've already read. And here, uh, you know, where there is a lack of courage that makes a person afraid of their own shadow or to hold back in the pursuit of virtue or one's vocation. And here we're talking about another uh, vice that, you know, that could undermine us in a deeper way. Again, make, you know, uh, the self replace God. And I think that's why it has greater weight in terms of the concern and the words that are being used here. And so let's just move on here. Uh, I want to see where John leads us uh, uh, before we sort of uh, go too far with it. Let's see, where do I leave off? Number 20. Whenever he sees that any have acquired in some slight measure a state of peace, immediately, oh, I'm sorry, I've read that already. Did I do 20 already? Yes, okay, pardon me. 21, Ethiopians have one kind of face and statues another. So too, the vainglory of those living in a community takes a different form from those living in the desert. So the, as a statue looks different from a particular person, uh, so the kind of vainglory that one finds in one living in community is going to look very different from the vainglory of one who's embraced the life of solitude, which is a very important to be able to see that is distinct, that there are things that are going to work on us in different ways. And that would be true in married life as well. The kind of vanity or vainglory that can emerge in, you know, even that in, most intimate re relationship. Uh, can be uh, very distinct. And I think this is where we have to go take John's writing as a leaping off point as to search our own hearts. You know, where, where do we see this manifest? Do we see power uh, and position, maybe even on an emotional level in our relationship with others, whether it's friends or spouses, uh, to elevate ourselves, in, again, in, in our own mind? Can the demon, you know, make us the one who sees himself or herself as as being the teacher uh, of others or uh, or the one who should have the last say or whatever it might be. And uh, and so John, you know, as he's bringing the, his readers along, wants us to understand that he's not presenting something here that is sort of monolithic, that it has uh different shapes and depending upon its one vocation vainglory incites monks to levity 
to anticipate the arrival of lay guests and to go out of the cloister to meet them. It makes them fall at their feet, and though full of pride, it feigns humility. It checks manner and voice and keeps an eye on the hands of visitors in order to receive something from them. It calls them lords and patrons, graced with godly life. To those sitting at table, it suggests abstinence, and it rebukes subordinates mercilessly. It stirs those who are slack at standing in psalmody to make an effort. Those who have no voice become good chanters and the sleepy wake up. It fawns upon the presenter and begs to be given first place in the choir. It calls him father and teacher as long as guests are still there. So an interesting thing, you know, this would have been part of the, what would have plagued those either living in community or living the solitary life, that one could grow slack or negligent in one's spiritual discipline or be prideful in one's relationship with others within the community, including one's superior. Uh, but this, the moment that uh, a lay guest would come or a potential benefactor might come, then all of a sudden people snap into order and begin to do things with a kind of perfection, whether it's chanting in the choir or, you know, talking about the faith and uh, calling the superior, you know, being very deferential to the superior, why these guests are present. So manifesting a kind of feigned humility. And we see this in the writings of those in the West as well, you know, Teresa of Avila, became very disturbed in her communities. And this is part of what led to the reform was that the amount of time that was spent in the parlor engaging people in conversation and that there were those who simply wanted to come and have these long conversations about the spiritual life with the nuns. And what Teresa saw emerging was this kind of dissipation as well as vainglory in it, that uh, uh, there was this desire, you know, for, to be, for them to be seen as spiritual, but also to have personal gain for the community uh, from these benefactors. And so uh, feeling the need to make themselves accessible in a way that would be inappropriate for uh, a cloistered nun. And uh, and so in a similar way, John is laying this before us, that these monks have embraced a life of solitude and deep silence. And a set, you know, their asceticism uh, is not something that the world was meant uh, to see. Uh, it's not what drove them to the desert. What drove them to the desert was to give their lives over fully to God and along this particular path. And, and so it should not become an act uh, in doing so, they uh, and we can become hypocrites, putting on the mask, you know, that others would see us in a certain kind of way. And uh, and so sometimes this is where we see the saintly figures often, you know, focusing on humbling their disciples gently. You know, uh, again, you know, I jump back to Philip Neary because he's one of my favorites, but, you know, there was uh, a monk who wanted to wear a hair shirt 
and kept pressing Philip Neary on it. And he kept saying no to him. And so finally, Philip Neary said, yes, but you have to wear it on top of your clothes. And so, you know, here he is, you know, walking around town, you know, with a hair shirt over, over top of his garments uh, rather than underneath them. And, uh, and, uh, and so he was very gentle, but also could see how this kind of vainglory could attack us, you know, right in the area where we think it's going to be something that leads us uh, to, to greater uh, and, uh, you know, spiritual strength. Anthony writes, living the spiritual life is not the same as conversations in a salon or on a college campus. That's right. You know, I think, with, and there can be a temptation uh, to make the faith entertaining. And I don't want this to sound in the way that maybe it came out there, as, as if we should be, you know, that the faith would be boring in and of itself. In fact, just the opposite. That which is most beautiful is the the, the faith life fully lived. And, uh, you know, and certainly for each of us, one would even say, I think it was Augustine, the greatest romance is to enter into that relationship most fully with God. Uh, and so it can be the most beautiful thing in our life, but we can be tempted uh, because of our lack of faith or because of vainglory to, to want to make it interesting to others, to sell it. You know, and to be become hucksters or used car salesmen in one form or another to to make things interesting rather than presenting the the gospel in its fullness, and uh, as it as if you know God's grace cannot touch the the human heart, and I think it's the similar vain glory that leads us then to want to argue people into the faith you know, with such aggression that we often, often do. Uh, and I, you remember I, I quoted New, Newman saying, and Newman was, again, one of the greatest, I think, historical theologians of the 19th century, philosopher, poet, you know, you could add multitude of things to it, uh, extraordinary man of faith, but saint, saying that, you know, it is absurd to think that we could argue a person into the faith as if, uh, 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 and as if we could torture them into the faith, that they're, they're equally absurd. The faith is a gift. And the most powerful thing is our living it, our being, uh, you know, manifestations of this godly love and this Christ-like love within the world. And it's not that we want, want to take an anti-intellectual position or that, you know, that there can't be joyfulness, you know, within the living out of that faith. You know, Philip Neary, again, was one of the most joyful uh, of the saints and, you know, used music and meals and these pilgrimages around Rome to the, you know, to the main basilicas uh, and uh, to draw the, the, the young in, into the faith. And, uh, but it was never this kind of, I, I think, uh, competing with the world. There was a holy genius there, but it wasn't a genius sort of looking to this kind of worldly genius, 
to elevate it, but rather the grace of God to guide one within the circumstances of one's own generation. And I think that's what we, we want to be doing as well, uh, both to avoid this kind of vainglory, uh, but uh, I think also of distorting the gospel so that it, it doesn't really pierce the heart or that we are no longer preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified, but something much different, or that we're only preaching certain elements of the gospel. Louise writes, could we say that vainglory corresponds to the ongoing self-validation or self-degradation of the ego, the ego focusing on the ego? If I were to let myself, I could become quite exasperated at this pervasive phenomenon inside my psyche. Any thoughts, Father? Yes, you know, I assume you're, you're meaning that it can even lead to self-degradation, that our self-degradation can be rooted in our ego. And so we could be whipping ourselves constantly, telling us ourselves how terrible we are. But still, the, the focus there is on the self rather than on, than on the mercy and the grace of God. And, uh, and so, you know, this is why I always love the Eastern approach to compunction, you know, this sorrowful joy, the sorrow that gives way to the joy of entering back into this intimacy with the Lord, this repentance that draws us to some, into something that is relational, not to focus in and on, in on ourselves. And, you know, that can be our tendency uh, kind to, it can draw us into a scrupulosity if that's a tendency or can draw us into a deep kind of self-hatred uh, rather than keeping our focus upon God in such a way that it allows us not to lose sight of our dignity as a son or daughter of God loved by him with an everlasting love. And uh, I think when the, so your point's well taken. This vain glory, this it's it's another way of turning back in on the self. And it can elevate, but uh, it can also uh, diminish us, but in a way that hurts so good. And I'll put it that way, just to be clear about it, that sometimes there is a kind of morbid delight that we can find in this uh, being uh, punitive towards the self you know i'm a wretch well you know uh there's a sense where that's true and it can be true but there's another way where it is such a focus upon the self again that it loses sight of the mercy and the grace of god and then frees us from taking hold of the life that christ is holding out to us so if we cling to this false notion of the self, you know, this vainglory leads us into that, you know, self-hatred where we are think that we're judging ourselves correctly, but we're still judging our, it's ourselves through our own uh, point of view and our own private judgment, rather than through the eyes of God and what has been revealed to us in Christ, then... Uh, you know, we're falling into the, the same kind of trap. So your, your point's all taken, and I think we often, often do that, you know, because it can be a frightening thing. You know, what will my life be if, you know, I give myself over to God? And, uh, 
even when we are given the stories like uh, the story of the father and the prodigal, prodigal son parable, you know, that uh, even, you know, the father's the one looking out for him and searching for him desperately in the horizon. We often don't read Luke, and this is a digression, I know, but just one second here. If we often don't re read Luke, uh, I think it's 15 in its entirety. And we really should, because the parable of the prodigal son is prefaced with the, the, the one lost sheep and the lost coin. And so Jesus is setting up the crowd. You know, every, of course, everybody rejoices with the old lady who searches, sweeps her house and finds that lost coin. And everybody rejoices with the shepherd who comes back with that lost sheep. And will, you know, applaud them, applaud them for doing, doing that. Then Jesus puts out, you know, this, you know, reprobate son who basically wishes his father dead. Give me my inheritance, goes out, spends it on loose living and becomes so impoverished that he decides I'm going to go home. At least there I'll be fed like one of the slaves. And what we see there is the, the father searching for him, runs out, embraces him, kisses him, clothes him, kills the fatted calf and celebrates. And at that moment, probably most of the people in the crowd turned and walked away and said, no way, forget it. You know, because this image of unconditional love, of forgiveness, of looking upon the other uh, as, again, in, in such a way that we don't lose sight of uh, there being a son or daughter of God is something that is very difficult to take, you know. We can do that with objects, with animals, but not with people. You know, it's much more difficult to imagine God and then imagine God searching us down. So we ought not to fight with our vainglory, but gently turn back to loving Jesus Christ. Yes, you know, I think one of the modern elders offers, and I can't remember his name at this point, offers some good counsel. He says, leave sin alone and focus upon Christ, focus upon God, that we can get so enmeshed in that struggle that it becomes the focal point of our attention. And I, I often find myself echoing this to young people, especially when there's the struggle with the sins of the flesh that can fill the heart with so much shame and humiliation that, uh, that the cure is the the greater love of turning toward christ and keeping one's focus upon him you know it's the gr greater passion the greater desire that pushes out the lesser and that's where the attention needs to be the moment that de the demon gets our attention even if we're fighting with the particular passion once he gets our minds there we, he's won and so what you said here i think is true you know keeping this gentle turning of the self toward God, a constancy in our repentance of, of turning towards him and seeking his grace as we're being afflicted. And that's hard, you know, because we often will turn in on ourselves rather than turn toward him. Okay, number 23, vainglory uh, makes those who are preferred proud and those who are slighted resentful. <laughs> so it works on us 
in both ways, you know, that the proud, you know, feels great, you know, that's, you know, uh, when, you know, we get attention, but, uh, and so we are overcome by vainglory. And then, but, you know, when we're slighted, then we get our hackles up and we want to defend ourselves and feel that we've been treated unjustly. And it's the same spirit at work on us. Vainglory is often the cause of dishonor instead of honor because it brings great shame to its enraged disciples. So those who are vainglorious often are overcome by the passion of anger. So when they feel slighted or when they're opposed in some form or fashion, then John tells us, they uh, it brings even greater shame to them because they become these enraged disciples of the evil one. They they you know breathe out this fury against anyone who gets in their way or seems to diminish them or what they want, and uh, and it can be a surprising thing but often will, again, will manifest itself in those who have, have great virtue uh, in this kind of shocking way. And I think this is why John says to their shame, because all, you know, they've, the, externally they've been presented as these holy figures and or those who articulate the faith very well. And the moment that someone challenges them on something that they're saying, or again, makes themselves an obstacle to what they want, they can become enraged and feel that they have, and more than that, that they, they feel that they are justified in letting it loose without any constraint. And it often has no constraint. It truly is being enraged with, with the other. It's sort of like the disciples saying, shall we bid fire come down and consume them? You know, when our Lord was insulted by the Samaritans. And in the same way, you know, there can be this thought in us, well, you know, we wouldn't be too unhappy if, of, you know, thunderbolt or a lightning bolt came down from heaven and struck that person, you know, just to get them out of our way. Uh, or sometimes we will make that happen. And then through our enraged behavior, especially an enraged behavior that isn't seen for what it is. You know, a loss of control, a loss of, you know, a giving of oneself over to a passion. When it's not seen for that and it's seen as something righteous, as righteous anger, then it's most destructive. We always have to remember James, you know, uh, exhortation in this regard that the anger of man does not bear fruit that is acceptable to God. That so often our anger is something that is destructive. And, you know, and everybody likes to point to, to Jesus overturning the tables in the temple and maybe making the whip and driving out the money changers as justification for their own anger. Uh, and we have to be wary of that. Okay, number 24. I'm sorry, number 25. Vainglory makes quick-tempered people meek before men. So here, he swings it back around that 
you know, it, it can make somebody who's ill-tempered seem meek when their image, their self-image can be exposed before, before others. So they might be aware of that. And, uh, you know, as we've often described it, it's egocentric, you know, that it's, that it's who I am. This is part of my character. And, and so when others, you know, of who aren't a part of that circle within which they live, they'll let that loose constantly. But as soon as somebody else comes into that mix, then they become these meek, gentle lambs you know, that they're, where their voice changes and they seem like the sweetest person on earth. It's, it's a little bit frightening because, you know, on some level, I, I don't know if you feel the same way. I think we, we, we see this in our hearts in all, all different ways and probably have experienced this in one form or another, it's at least at some point in our lives. Uh, Rachel writes, I think vainglory can be ever so subtle. I know someone who was told by a priest that they were being scrupulous in a certain matter when they were when they tried to confess. This brought much confusion because the person knew that the sins they attempted to confess were not serious matter and did not need to be confessed, but in their desire to fight pride and vainglory, which was the cause of their sins. The person then had to fight vainglory in another way. And that was not to tell the priest they knew that they were not serious sins. It was more painful to be seen as scrupulous and weak-minded for that person. Right. I mean, we can be tripping over ourselves with every turn. Uh, you know, on one level, you know, bearing, you know, as in this case of this individual with what the priest said or being misunderstood, uh, but then withholding saying what is really on our mind or how that made us feel uh, in those circumstances. Uh, because again, we don't want to be seen as, as you said, uh, weak-minded or, or overly scrupulous. So a very good point. You know, again, the, the subtlety of it can be quite extraordinary. Number 26, it has great ambition for natural gifts and through them often hurls its wretched slaves to destruction. And so, you know, our eyes can be drawn to uh, wanting to develop natural qualities, gifts, and talents, uh, but to do so, again, simply to feed one's ego. And so there can be a craving within us, especially if we're being told that we have these natural gifts. But I think simply the awareness of them doesn't necessarily mean that they are meant to be pursued or used. You know, what we are to be seeking is God and the will of God, and not necessarily the perfection of our natural gifts. And in fact, God might lead us along a particular path where those natural gifts aren't used. And maybe they aren't being used because they become in a subtle way, an obstacle to our sanctification, that we might become overly focused upon them, not because they're bad in and of themselves, but that but they can become an impediment to us. 
And exactly for the reason that John puts forward here, that sometimes we can become enamored with them, that an, an, an ambition develops around them, that uh, an ambition to, to have them fully and uh, to succeed in one form or another. 27, I've seen a demon injure and chase off his own brother. For just when a brother had lost his temper, secular visitors suddenly arrived, and the wretched fellow resold himself to vainglory. He could not serve two passions at the same time. So it's an interesting thing. And John has brought this up a number of different times within the text. And I think it's a good thing for us to see that, you know, one passion can thwart another and uh, not oh, the demons don't work necessarily in this ordered fashion that often it is chaos and each of the demons seeking to bring us down in their own particular way. And they're not necessarily going to be working in cooperation. And so John is saying here that, you know, he's, you have a brother who's raging at another, and then all of a sudden somebody comes into the room and he resells himself to vainglory because he does not want to be seen by these externs as being hot-headed. And so, again, he plays nice with his brother when in reality, in his heart, he's raging against him. And so, you know, one passion overcome, un, you know, uh, or one demon, as it were, unwittingly overcomes the other. And this is important for us to see because I think sometimes we look for human logic in the spiritual battle. And it's not necessarily going to be that way. As if we're going to be able to figure out perfectly, even after reading the fathers and somebody like John Klamkus, as clearly as he defines things, I think he also wants us to understand that what's most important for us is to cling to Christ, to he who is truth, not to get sucked into uh, these, these actions or into the temptation of the evil ones or the, the specifics of the temptations in, in the sense of overanalyzing them. Because we can find ourselves getting caught up in this kind of web of confusion about what's going on within our own heart. I think our, our responsibility is to keep our focus upon the Lord, who is, is our rock in the spiritual battle. And so don't overestimate your own strength, but don't think that you have the demons and their actions figured out either, because there it can be chaos even in how they work, and they can work at cross purposes. So isn't that interesting? You know that uh, it really humbles us in this sense that it, no matter how long we've been in this spiritual battle, we can we can never see ourselves as having things figured out. Well, I know what that is, or that, that this demon is doing that. But we don't know what this demon is doing over here, or how they're going, you know, how their actions are going uh, to work with or against each other. And so, you know, all that we can have is humility and to cling to the Lord. Father uh, David. Uh, I've uh, just one more comment here, and then we'll we'll get to yours here. Kevin Burke wrote. Uh, the deeper we go into John's vainglory examples, the more it seems the same as pride to me. 
can we recap the distinction between vainglory and pride? Uh, I would, but I'd, I'd rather John do that for us. I think what John, and I will say that John sees it, you know, as pride as being like the adult that, or the full grown oak tree, whereas the vainglory is the acorn, you know, the sort of the, uh, the root of it. And so if one overcomes vainglory, one uh, doesn't fall into pride. And uh, I think with pride, uh, I think one has, <coughs> excuse me, has taken a step where they're so, excuse me, so deeply immersed <clears throat> in this vision of the self that they become a demon, John says. They no longer need demons to attack them. Uh, and so he'll say that, in fact, explicitly, you know, the prideful monk needs no demon because he's become one himself. So we, the, the passion becomes so deeply ingrained uh, that overcoming it becomes very difficult because who are you going to seek counsel from? you know, including God. And at that point, you know, the if you if you're in the grip of it, you you've become the very thing that is the opposite of God and the opposite of humility. And so again, he'll play this out for us. And but I'd rather to have him do it through his examples than 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 me stumble through it. And so Rory, was that did you have a common or question there was that you uh yes it was okay. so the d degree between vainglory and pride is there an aspect of free will involved with all that oh i think there's an aspect of free will involved in all of it in some form or another i think we can get so deeply mired in our sins that they become passions and so our free will begins to break down. We, we are in the grip of sin and sin has become habitual. And the same would be true with pride. Uh, but I, I think the form that it takes on for us, uh, that just, you know, that in it, we find all the other passions. And when, when it has become habitual, this is why John will take that step and say, they become demons. We've made this step that perhaps has become as irreparable as the demons. Like the demons could see all the consequences of their, their choices, the fallen angels. And so the fall is absolute and irreparable. And, uh, you know, I, I think on some level, we resist imagining that that could be true for us in our, our freedom that we could turn away in such a radical fashion uh, that uh, that can become irreparable for us. But I think this is why Christ speaks of the unforgivable sin, that we turn away so profoundly from the spirit of truth and from the spirit of love that uh, repentance becomes an impossibility. And uh, if you remember in the gospel, that teaching comes right after 
they accused Jesus of healing somebody on the Sabbath by the power of Beelzebul. So they're attributing to God what is from evil. And so they've lost the capacity to see that which is good in what is good. And, uh, and, and that means they also have lost the capacity to see their own poverty and need for God's goodness and mercy. And, uh, and this is why I think in the spiritual life, we, we never want to treat, and, you know, Rachel mentions this in a, uh, the experience of the individual in, in her comment, that we, we don't want to see s small sins as insignificant and having no meaning. And I think this is why we would want to bring them to confession as well, not because we're being scrupulous, but because we are trying to uproot that which could become something that is deadly and if unattended. And so we, we bring it in order to know the healing grace of the sacrament, but also to receive the counsel of the spiritual father. And, uh, and so we would want to deal with something like vainglory as fully as we can, so we don't get drawn into pride, which is much more difficult to, to uproot. And I think at that, uh, that point, we freely have given ourselves over to that which is con contrary to God. Uh, Anthony writes, that's Dante's penultimate circle of hell, if memory is correct. Persons who appear alive on earth, but they have confirmed, confirmed themselves in hell. And David Swiderski writes, aren't a lot of the theologians presenting vainglory by arguing about angels on a pin, filioque, how one makes the sign of the cross, etc. Only I can see the truth. All others that don't agree with me are wrong. Right. You know, it's, I think because our starting point becomes wrong, is wrong. Or if our starting point is not on Christ and on the healing that he alone can, can bring, if our starting point is not humility, uh, then our theology is not going to be uh, something that is godly, but it's going to become demonic theology. Uh, you know, it's going to focus upon all these things that really draw, end up drawing us away from God rather than leading us toward him. And so purity of heart, and, the, you know, we can sort of conclude with this, the fathers put forward as being essential because out of it arises the, the fruit of discernment to see the truth about ourselves, our need for God, his mercy, as well as to see the depth of his love and his compassion. And, uh, you know, it, this purity of heart you know, sweeps away the illusions that we are seeing described here in this particular step. You know, we aren't tempted along that path as vainglory, of vainglory, if, if we are pure of heart. So pure purity of heart is not just, you know, uh, sexual purity, you know, not, you know, not, uh, you know, avoiding lustful actions or thoughts. Purity of heart is, is really, you know, this, an individual who's given themselves over fully to God and finds in him the one thing necessary and in doing so is made pure by, by his grace and this is why cassian says it's the immediate goal of the spiritual life 
this, this is what we want to be, be seeking out. So it's a lot, lot there this evening, folks, to consider uh, with Vainglory. And these, as the further we move on in the book, the more, more challenging it can be because of the subtlety of the passions. But again, we have no better teacher than John. Just extraordinary in every way. Okay, so it's 8.40, and we'll stop there for the, the evening. And as always, with the, our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Amen. Thanks.